it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. And I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. And welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. It's Wednesday, which means we're picking out some of the best work available on the Athletic right now and putting the writers under the spotlight. I think Tottenham called me to improve the situation. But I'm, I'm too honest to close my eyes, you understand? I have ambition. I hate to lose. I repeat, four games in the last five games. This is uh, unacceptable. Oh, what a flick on for Son. It's brilliant. It's on. It's a goal. It's 3-0. It looked inevitable, and it was. His second of the day is outstanding. Today, Spurs correspondent for The Athletic, Charlie Eccleshill, joins us to talk about Antonio Conte's Spurs and how less Spursy they are starting to look. Yep, absolutely lovely timing. I had the extreme displeasure of seeing them in the flesh at Villa Park on Saturday. So we'll get into that, but we'll also assess Antonio Conte's impact since arriving in November, the emotion, the playing style, the star performers and why top four this season is so important. Dan, before we get stuck into a lot of Spurs chat, I want to ask you about Villa because... We chat a lot about Gerard when he first joined and we talked about how he was really motivating quite a, 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 a low on confidence squad and he had had a massive impact on the team. But there's been some tricky runs since mm. he came in, some bad runs of defeats as well. How are you feeling about Villa at the moment and also the Gerard and the job he's done? I would quite like the season to end now, Fleur. It does feel like it's petering out, petering out a little bit. There's not much of a gap between 9th and 16th. Mm. So I do feel that Villa could end up quite easily finishing 16th this season, the way it's gone. I mean, they've lost 17 games this season. It's a Villa, lot. I, think, I think that's three more than Burnley, who are in the bottom three. Villa just can't draw. They either win or they lose. And that early feel-good from Gerrard, it does seem to have evaporated quite quickly. It was a very empty Villa Park by the, by the end of the game. Fans left long before the final whistle and... I think it's a combination of things at the moment. I think you could ask a few questions about recruitment. I think the three players that came in to replace Jack Grealish, we only seem to be able to get one of them on the pitch at the same time with the formation we play, which isn't great. And also I realised last night that if you're replacing Jack Grealish, none of those three players play in the same position as he was playing for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that doesn't, really, that doesn't really make any sense at all. And then you know, the players have had these bad runs under two managers now. I don't know. I don't know what that tells you, but it's easy to keep pointing the finger at the manager. I think Gerard's post matches have been a bit prickly recently. Maybe the players aren't liking that. I think we just need to get to the summer. There'll be a lot of money thrown at it again. I'm sure they'll back Stephen Gerrard because he'll want to get his own type of, of player in. But it's been a really, really strange season for Villa. I'd have killed for mid-table obscurity a few years ago when Villa were battling to get out of the championship or they were trying to stay up on the last day of the season. But once you're in it, as I say, losing 17 games, we could quite easily lose 20 plus. 
this season and that's a lot of defeats to take despite having pretty much been safe for the whole season. Yeah, and I think you're on an ambitious club, right? You've got an ambitious yeah, club. Yeah, the with, owners won't be up there. With good financial backing, with a, I don't mean celebrity manager in a rude way, but with a big name in the dugout, you know, all things point towards pushing for Europe. And I think, actually, I think at the start of the season, I was saying that that was realistic for, for Villa to try and push on, get to a cup final mm-hmm. or something like that. And like you say, when, when, you, when you've got that all behind you, it is quite hard to then just settle for low mid to mid table obscurity it's just it's 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 hard as well it just feels a little bit like a wasted season in 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 some ways because they did they did even though Grealish had gone it felt like there was still a little bit of a feel good at the start of the season and then again we got that feel good when when Gerard came in after a bad run under Dean Smith but it's all kind of evaporated and yeah we can't Villa fans I think just want the season to end at this point so we've got your take on things Dan from a Villa perspective that game on Saturday was a big one, but not really for Villa. It's a big result for Spurs. So let's get into some Spurs chat with Charlie Eccleshire. Welcome, Charlie. Spurs writer for The Athletic and an ever-present on The Athletic Spurs podcast, A View from the Lane 2. Before we get into it, let's have a look at the state of play right at the start of this chat. So Spurs are fourth, three points clear of Arsenal, who still have that game in hand away at Chelsea. And I'm not sure why we're still discussing these, but six points clear of Manchester United and West Ham. Charlie, you've been pretty adamant for a while that Spurs are going to clinch fourth this season. And at points, you may have looked a little bit crazy. What made you so confident before it all started to swing Tottenham's way? Well, I guess partly the teams they were up against. I, I didn't see an outstanding candidate there. Um, obviously, United, their problems have been well documented. West Ham, I, I always felt with being in Europe and not that big a squad would, would count against them. And the Arsenal just lacked the experience. And then from a Spurs point of view, having Conte as a manager yeah. felt a bit like having a gun and a knife fight. And I just thought eventually things would click for him, especially the fact they went out of Europe prematurely, which meant they would get these free game weeks once they'd caught up with the backlog of the games that were postponed. So a lot of it was to do with the faith in him. Uh, I I just thought uh, that would see them through. And they they were never as far off as it seemed. I mean, and, and the games in hand were a bit of a red herring as well because Arsenal had these games in hand, but they were against Liverpool and Chelsea and Chelsea still have to play. And given their pretty wretched record against those bigger teams I, I, I it just felt a bit misleading so yeah that that was why I always felt that Spurs uh, would probably have enough and throw in the fact they've got Kane and Son um, and that yeah. is just such a huge advantage to have over their rivals I was going to say that's the biggest thing for me now in the difference mm. between Spurs and Arsenal I felt like Arsenal were more of a team at one point yeah but Spurs have got that now and also you mentioned that firepower Arsenal just they, they don't have that do they yeah, well, I said this last week, actually, before even the Ars- the Palace-Arsenal game, when it all started to turn, was that Spurs, both teams were on a similar winning run, but Spurs had been winning their games pretty comfortably, scoring a lot of goals. Arsenal had won six out of seven games, but I think five were by a single goal, and the other was 2-0. And you, ju- you just felt that that's... <laughs> Some of those games could have gone either way, and eventually those games will start going the other way. Yeah. Plus, they've been playing with a striker who can't score goals and I always felt that may not be sustainable um, whereas Spurs didn't have such a kind of obvious issue that they were grappling with since Romero came back and they seem to have sorted out their defence. 
Dan, you were you were there in, in on Saturday. You got to mm. see this in the flesh. Lucky you. Charlie, it was pretty phenomenal performance because I was listening to the game uh in the car. I think I was coming back from Oxford. And um and yeah, like you mentioned the piece, Spurs were well and truly under the cosh in the first half. Mm. So actually to have this result, sorry, Dan, I can feel you kind of tears coming. There was a nil one battering in the first half. <laughs> Absolute nil one battering. To have this result as almost a symbol of the transformation of being Spursy or, or Dr. Tottenham, as you reference in your piece, is kind of amazing because it's almost like redefining a new Spurs way, which is absorbing the pressure and still being able to make it count when you've got two of the best attacking mm. players in the world. Yeah, I mean, it just felt like such a like perfect laboratory conditions for a Spurs slip up like all their rivals had lost and yeah there is this um, perception amongst the fan base it, it, I think it might be one of those slight confirmation biasy things that it may not be that rooted in reality but the sense is that when when their rivals lose Spurs don't then take advantage then throw in the fact they were playing against Villa who were a bit of a wounded animal had lost three games and that's where this Dr Tottenham thing comes in that they again uh, their sense is that they give ailing teams, uh, you know, a, a well-timed leg up. Um, and also the fact that in the game, as you say, Villa were played really, really well. That first half, they battered Spurs. They had seven shots on target, which is, I believe, the most since Opta started counting these things in 2003 that they've faced in, in the first half of game seven. I mean, it was, as Dan says, it was a nil-one battering. Villa was so on top. They were physical. Fans were up for it. The players were up for it. it. It just felt like one of those games that in previous years Spurs might well have struggled with. So to come through it, and not just come through it, I mean, they rode the storm and then they, they they got the goal, the second goal at such an important time because I'm sure, Dan, you felt this as well, that this sense of deflation at the ground, like the, yeah. the fans had been so up for it, players so up for it. And then it, honestly, it just felt like a balloon had been popped or something. And it was just like, oh, well, that's that done. Um, well, because I knew... Probably three or four, five were coming. That was, I think, that, yeah. was, that was the problem. I suppose we're just very, very clinical. That's they it. They have six shots in the, in the whole game, and they've scored four goals. Son, Son's finishing, even on his wrong foot, just absolutely ridiculous. And, that, and that's what Spurs have got. They can keep clean sheets, and they've got them to them two up top. And Kudelzewski as well, who's been a phenomenal son. You know, that's one thing that I think is getting overlooked a little bit. Arsenal stood still. Yeah. In January, Spurs did not. Spurs bought in two players that have improved them. Yeah, they had one of the best Januaries I can remember a team having. But it didn't feel like that at one point, did it for Spurs no. fans at all? Well, this is the thing, you know, the first, you know, literally the first like twenty nine days of that window was a disaster. They missed out on their targets, and even when they made those signings, the perception was very much well. Fabio Paratici, who's the director of football, essentially was just going back to his old club Juve and saying, "Got any cast offs I could I could maybe have?" You know, that was really was the perception. Obviously, Bentancur and Kudelski were players Spurs liked, but obviously, Dan, you know as well, Bentancur was someone Villa were after. Mm. Um, you know, def that was definitely the perception of that window. But they've come in. Bentancur has been really good, but Kudelski has been transformational I would say and and this was I interviewed Christian Romero last week and he was saying that you know kind of unprompted I was asking kind of what surprised him about Spurs he said Kulisevsky I can't believe how good he's been and how how much he's transformed the attack because for a long time since Ericsson went they were basically relying on Kane for that link-up play that creativity now they've got someone else who can ease that burden off Kane um, and it just makes them so hard to defend against 
another element as well of of Saturday's game was not only Spurs being under the cosh, but also having to kind of withstand quite an aggressive Villa defence. Uh, some pretty feisty challenges. I think the, the the commentary I was listening to, they couldn't believe there was only like a few yellow cards in that first half and they thought there was definitely going to be a few sendings off. It was a pretty aggressive game and Spurs really had to, to take a lot of heat. Dan, you were there. What was that like to watch for your team and how, how do you think Spurs dealt with that as well? I mean, I didn't particularly notice it. What, what really? Whilst I was sat there. No, that, it, was, it was definitely an element of the coverage say. I was listening to. They really talked about it a lot. Yeah, I guess when you're in the stands, it's, it's difficult to gauge how bad tackles are because you literally only see them once. So the Matty Cash mm. one, I actually haven't seen that back at all. But obviously Doherty's been ruled out for the for the entire season. So that's that's not obviously not, not brilliant. But it didn't feel in the ground like we were particularly aggressive because we, we are quite a passive team in general. We're quite a team of, of of nice guys and I'd actually like us to have a bit a bit more force about us. Maybe it just went unnoticed by me, but you know, obviously when Doherty's going off injured and he's gonna miss the rest of the season, that is that is a big thing. But I would say I was watching Romero very closely for Tottenham. Jeez, that guy, that guy is is aggressive. You know, Luca Dean's gone off with an he's broken his collarbone. I think I think he's going to be out for the rest of the season after after a shove from Romero. So I would kind of point back to that a little bit. But he's a, a really weird defender, Romero, because he pops up absolutely everywhere mm. and he gets so touch tight to, to attackers. I've never seen a defender who gets so so tight to attackers. He he's um he's a phenomenon, honestly. Like the the way he defends and intimidates opposition players often by not even having to make tackles just his mere presence and as you say with him popping up he he gets forward a lot like he's yeah. really important to the way they attack and having those having that three at the back system means he does have license to do it and he's been really important in overwhelming opposition defenses and you saw that Harry Maguire scored an own goal for United against Spurs a few weeks ago and that was Romero is basically in the six-yard box in open play as a centre-back. I mean, it's it's really interesting what he's doing there. But yeah, I mean, I think on that on the aggression point, I actually wrote about this uh, today on the Athletic, and I I do think there is too because I um, was at the game obviously, but I've since watched it back, heard commentary and all of that, and it did feel like there was too much of this sort of. Um, you know, talking about bad tackles as being committed and kind of celebrating it, which is quite an English football thing. And I do think we need to be a bit better at just calling out bad tackles. Um, you know, obviously there's a balance and we want the game to be physical and that's part of what makes the Premier League special and all of that. But I think sometimes we still go too far. Um, and it is a real shame for Doherty to have that injury because he's been he's been in really good form. And it just felt like the because the referee let that go and it it was 100% a foul and it should have been more it should have been a, you know, a definitely a booking by letting that go and he just gave a throw in i think he then sort of gave license to mm. everyone to just to just go flying in and i think as well like you mentioned Dan about the kind of the Villa of Santos has been a bit passive i think the context wasn't it that this came off the wolves game where gerard felt they didn't lay a glove on their opponents and so i think it, it did feel like they were very much um, they were definitely up fired up, weren't they? Yeah, they, exactly. they'd had they'd had a bit of a talking to. But do you, I mean we've talked about it before in in the context of Bukayo Saka and must be a North London thing. Maybe it's a North terms. London thing. But do you think do you think it's um it's a sign of Spurs' growth and and newfound strength that they are riding these challenges a little bit more and not, I suppose, being intimidated mm. uh, when you know opposition might try and use that to kind of get hold of the game. 
Yeah, I do. And I think it's a compliment in many ways as well. Like that, you know, this does happen to teams when they're technically very good. And the sense is that, well, we need to be physical with them because we're probably not going to be able to play them off the park. You know, and that said, I thought it would be unfair to characterize, and I say this in the piece, it would be unfair to characterize Villa's approach as a kind of, you know, <laughs> Stoke from the late noughties reincarnated. They they were also very good at winning the ball back, keeping Spurs pinned in. I mean, Spurs just couldn't get out in that first half. And that was, yes, that was through some big tackles, but it was mainly just through pressing well uh, and good anticipation, similar to, you know, the how Crystal Palace have been a lot of the time this season, you know, when, when they've managed to dominate against, you know, supposedly bigger teams. I think the problem Villa had as well was that it, it did feel like they maybe exerted so much energy doing that in the first half and then got no reward from it. And then I think we're a bit spent. Certainly once that second goal went in, it did just feel like the the energy levels sort of deserted them at that point. There was also the fact that the goalkeeper had the yeah. game of his life. Yeah. I, 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 earlier on in the season, I was watching Lloris and thinking, I'm not, I'm not sure if I feel like he's coming to the end of his time at Spurs a little bit. It looks a little bit suspect. He was giving away goals, passing the ball out for corners and, and things like that. But he was inspired yeah. on, on Saturdays. Has he kind of come back to his best under Conta? Yeah, I mean, he's actually had a, a pretty good couple of years. He's generally been consistent. You know, one or two mistakes, but he um, he's held it together really well. And that save, where where we're sat in the press box, is the view we had for that Jacob Ramsey one was astonishing. It's What's one that? of those where you just think... Jacob Ramsey. Oh, what a run! And what a save from Hugo Lloris. But Hugo Lloris has just produced... Potentially one of his best saves of the season. What a reaction. That's, that's, in the split second you have between it leaving the player's foot and the keeper making the save, that, that's a goal. That's just 100% a goal. I mean, that I think that's one of the best saves he's made for Tottenham. It was a really good save because he had had some power behind his well yeah, in real time. That's some save. From, from close range. And, and yeah, you need your goalkeeper. There, there are, that's the thing. There are going to be games where you are under the cosh and you, you, you need someone to step up. Um, and sometimes that's going to be your keeper. Let's talk a little bit about the man behind the Spurs 2.0, if you like. Um, Sarah Shepard's done a piece that's up at the Athletic on the Athletic at the moment called Moods and Emotions are Contagious. We need to be careful. How emotional should a football manager be? Uh, and I think when you think of emotional football managers, you often think of Italian managers and then you would probably think of Antonio Conte because the intensity, the expressiveness, not just through his booming voice but his mannerisms his hands I mean I almost wish that that Amazon Prime documentary although obviously Mourinho is box office I kind of wish it come out you know been filmed now because I would love to see what you know would be happening with Conte at the training ground and also in in the dressing room so how important has he been? Yeah I mean Conte's been absolutely critical to to this turnaround and the last few weeks, you're really seeing his ideas getting across. Um, the the energy of the players, the fitness. I mean, he's transformed that from where they were when he came in, and and the way they're playing. I mean, he he has these very carefully constructed patterns of play, uh, which now that he's got a week on the training ground, he can really get across to his players, and they they just look so coherent. The way they attack, um, they they look as if they're going to score three or four every game. Um, and his fingerprints are all over this team. The way they defend as well, again, they're well-structured. 
they play that three at the back system, which is Conte's calling card, and you've got the two outside centre-backs, Davis and Romero, who I mentioned before, with that licence to get forward. It's really clicked, and he, you know, he's very much wants to control everything, like most elite managers. Uh, and you can just see that now, that it's all, it's all his kind of master plan is starting to come to fruition. Yeah, because you did a piece before the Villa game on Saturday that I read and tweeted you saying, well, if I wasn't concerned before the <laughs> yeah. game. I definitely am now talking about Conte's chaos, basically, but it is chaos in in a good way. It's, it's sensational to watch. And I was looking at this, obviously sat there in a pretty empty halt and watching the Spurs fans having the time of their life in the away end. It is a joy to watch a team come forward in that manner. Yeah, it's weird. It's this sort of controlled chaos. Like he, it looks, but because a lot of the time it's, piling into the box it can feel chaotic but it's all so carefully planned out and and I think that's what's uh so good about it you know because you are opposition teams don't really know how to deal with it you know who who picks up the left-sided centre-back when he joins in the attack that's not that conventional a problem to have to deal with you know and then you've got Romero doing the same on the other side it's like well is that the left-back's responsibility is that one of the holding midfielders um so it, it does have this chaotic feel and yet it's all so well choreographed when they click it, it, it does have this sense of teams feeling overwhelmed. Like they, they just don't really know what to do. And because now another of Conte's trademarks, the players are so fit, they can back themselves to do that, to get forward if you're Romero or Ben Davis, knowing that, A, you're probably able to get, to get back yourself, but also that there are going to be holding midfielders there who will cover for you. So it's just all, um, it's all so well thought out and, and you can see the results now are, are starting to come. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. Stay with us as we'll cast our minds right back to when Conte first arrived at Tottenham. Next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Charlie, remind us about what it was like when Conte arrived because obviously it was a man that they'd been waiting to get for a very long time. They tried and failed to get the previous summer. Nuno Spurs Centre had just been sacked and I suppose it felt like for a lot of Spurs fans, kind of here we go again, more chaos, not in the in the positive way, hmm. uh, and more upheaval and probably goodbye to a, another season trying to get into, back into the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, they they almost benefited from Nuno's appointment being so catastrophic that they were able to get rid of him early enough in the season that A, Conte was still available and God knows what United must be thinking about deciding that they didn't want Antonio Conte uh, and B, that the Champions League wasn't completely out of reach because Nuno was 
the performances were actually worse than the results. I think when Conte came in, Spurs were something, they were only something like five points off fourth, so all wasn't lost. But the mood was diabolical because mm. performances were dreadful. And so just to offer a contrast, Nuno's last game at the end of October against United was a 3-0 defeat. 3-0 home defeat and it was the most toxic atmosphere one of them certainly one of the most toxic atmospheres I can remember a couple that maybe would rival it uh, at Spurs and you know <laughs> hostility towards Daniel Levy towards um, other directors towards Nuno towards the players it was just awful um, and so that was the environment Conte was coming into and yeah then he came in and suddenly it was like okay, well, we've got this elite manager who we wanted last summer, who, as you say, they've, they've wanted for a while. And and the season was alive with possibility. And obviously there have been bumps in the road. You know, Conte, when you appoint Conte, you, you take the rough with the smooth. You know that you're going to get, you know, his amazing coaching, but you're also going to get a huge amount of volatility. And we've seen that. I mean, he he, he has sounded off after a few defeats you know, it wasn't long ago after the loss at Burnley and he was talking, the way he was talking yeah. was, was like, I'm that's done. Why I was gonna, that's what I was going to ask you because even though Spurs are in a really positive spot right now, um, there's been some really difficult times under mm. Conte already and I'm in a, a WhatsApp group with a lot of Spurs fans. We're in a, actually in an NFL fantasy league together and a lot of the guys in that group are Spurs fans. And about a month or so ago, kind of after that Burnley defeat and after some difficult performances, they were all getting a little bit tired of Conte's post-match comments Mm. and feeling like it was on a par with some of the stuff that they'd seen under Mourinho where, you know, a lot of blame on the players, a lot of kind of rhetoric like you're just giving up. It's impossible. It's an impossible job. It's an impossible task. And a lot of them were kind of really finding that difficult and feeling like, is this actually the man we want? Now, obviously, that's kind of flipped on its head uh, in the last couple of weeks. But it is interesting to think about, I suppose, how volatile this relationship is when you've, still, when you've got a manager like Conte. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it was actually after the Burnley defeat when I tweeted that I still thought Spurs would get the top four. That was when I got the most amount of abuse. And it was quite funny reading back the comments. I mean, it was all just like, what are you smoking? I want what you're having. You're deluded. You're an idiot. All that, the kind of usual stuff. And he, he, later that night, was then when he sounded off and was like, yeah, as you say, this this job is maybe impossible. I don't know if I'm the man for it. And at that time, both the fans were very annoyed and kind of like, well, in a way, just go then. If you don't want to be here, if you don't think it's for you, if you think you're above it, because that was another thing. He did keep saying things like, you know, look, I'm not used to just fighting for the top four. You know, I'm used to winning. T- and everyone was a bit like, mm, all right, mate, you know. And and there was a sense then of like, well, and, and what's interesting with that, there was also the sense of like, how is it that, you know, we've we've broken another manager, you know, mm. even the, you know, because that was the thing with Mourinho. It was like, okay, well, it will be turbulent. It may be horrible in parts, but he's a born winner. He always wins. You can't go wrong with Mourinho. Obviously it did go wrong. And there was, a, a, there was that slight sense of deja vu of like, you know, what are we going to do? Have we broken Conte? Though I think a lot of people also felt, well, maybe he's just not as great as he thinks he is because, um, you know, he's come in, results were good initially, and then they wavered. I did, as I was saying, I did always, I, I could totally feel those frustrations and I, and I shared some of them, but I did just think he, 
there was enough there for me personally to think you can see big improvements and, and with a bit of time they'll come good the problem was it didn't seem like there was going to be much time because he did give the impression that he might be off and and honestly at that time after that Burnley game speaking to people um at the club and you know sources close to the club and what have you very very few people were really thinking he was in it for the long term most weren't even thinking he'd be there next season to be honest like it really did feel like it just wasn't for whatever reason wasn't going to work out how how long do you think he'll stay i don't know it's really difficult to say i mean his contract is only until the end of next season uh, and he's generally not been one to stick around all that long i mean if if they don't get top 4 which because we're talking about it as if it's a done deal. Obviously, that mm. could still it could still turn around. You know, if they don't get top four, then I think we're in for a summer of speculation and will he, won't he stay? Um, if they do, then I'd, I'd be very surprised if he didn't stay next season. But beyond that, it's really difficult. I mean, you know, look at Chelsea. He had that amazing first season where they won the league. And then the second season was horrible. I mean, he left at the end of it. And for most of it, he was at war with the club press conferences were miserable and it just all fell apart really quickly so there's no guarantee even if things end well this season that they'll stay harmonious because it's interesting you, you know you mentioned about the emotional thing and there was there was after one defeat I think it was the Wolves defeat at home and he said something like yeah I, I think this team's too emotional and I was kind of like yeah, I wonder where they get that from. Like when you know, he was literally like veering. It's like it's like a parent. Yeah, saying, exactly. Oh, why are my kids? Yeah. Why do my kids have so many issues? Why my, do you think, mate? My mom's Italian. She reminds me of Antonio Conte. So I've said this before. She's the female Antonio Conte, and she wonders why I, I, I can get a bit emotional sometimes. I think it's an Italian thing, to be honest. Oh yeah, definitely. It was kind of crazy, and he was at this time. So, literally the day before that Burnley defeat in the which afterwards he had this kind of meltdown and was like, maybe I'm not the right man, et cetera, et cetera. The day before, he was like full of the joys of spring, bounded into the press conference, was laughing, was joking. It was like charming Conte. And then literally the next day, and it was at that point, like, I'm not sure how sustainable this is, you know, this kind of boom and bust. But then since then, they've won six out of seven in the league and it's all turned around. And and he, I mean, it was quite interesting because after that, that Burnley one, it was clearly to all of us anyway an emotional reaction but he then explained it away a couple of days later was like no no I'm just like sending messages to the players and to the board and all and it was kind of like maybe that's part of it but you also did seem pretty pissed off um but you know maybe it was all part of uh, his master plan because results since then have been really good yeah, if it was part of his master plan, it, it, it certainly worked. Like you say, I think they've, they've scored 25 goals since then and they're now the model of consistency and they've, they've, they've had a great time in recent months. I just want to ask you about Harry Kane because I was at the reverse Villa Spurs fixture at, the, at Tottenham mm. in October, I think it was, under Nuno, which you've already said was a bad time. I was watching Harry Kane. He was just a shadow of his former self. I was like, what has happened to this guy? He just looks like he's got absolutely nothing left. And now you're watching him again. He's back to his best, doing everything. I think there was an interesting Burkamp comparison from yourself mm. on, your, on your Tottenham podcast yesterday, I think I think it was. Well, maybe we'll come on to that. But he's in the form of his life again. Such a good player, such a great player to watch. How much of Harry Kane's resurgence can be put down to Conta? Yeah, again, loads of it. because And, and okay. so much of it is, um, is fitness. So he, Kane, uh, from what I understand... And I've reported this before. He he was surprised almost at how quickly um, 
he felt so much fitter um, under Conte. And, and that's obviously something Conte, that is so important to Conte. And he worked really hard with all the players on that. But he just... That Villa game in October is a good example. He was sluggish. He just couldn't beat play. Like, they're, they're, in that first half of the season, there are a number of times where he'd be up against a defender and would sort of lose out in a one-on-one battle. And I'd look over to whoever's sitting next to me being like, that is quite alarming. Like, he just... He looked like... As you say, it's sort of he'd lost it. But now, not only is the fitness so improved, but he's got such a clear idea of what he wants to be doing. Like with Conte, it's also crystal clear. He's got a lot of license as well. I mean, Nuno, there were times where he was playing almost as a left winger. It was bizarre. There was a game against Chelsea in September, which was a home 3-0 defeat. And his he was, yeah, kind of playing on the wing, wasn't really even getting anywhere near the box, was barely having shots. Um, so I think, and and also for Kane, I mean, bear in mind, and diff, you know, different people have different perspectives on this, but he was coming off the summer where he wanted to move, didn't get his move, lost the Euro 2020 final, so still hasn't won anything in his career. And also, you know, he was leaving Spurs because, or he wanted to leave Spurs, sorry, because of what he felt was a lack of ambition, the lack of opportunity for him to win trophies or play in the Champions League. And then the way they addressed that was to bring in Nuno. And Nuno's a perfectly good manager, but I think he's probably Europa League level at best. So it wasn't as though they really pushed the boat out and made him think, no, no, you can do what, you can achieve your goals here, Harry. You know, they they were, you know, sort of... That was a very Harry Potter-esque, you can achieve your goals here, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he would have left. Hogwarts, I think, Harry. If, <laughs> yeah, if, exactly. if Dumbledore had shown that little ambition with his appointment. Is is uh, is, is Son the uh, Ron Weasley to uh, Harry Kane's Harry in- Potter? Interesting. I mean, I think it's slightly flipped now. It's almost now, um, I guess, is it in the sixth book that then Ron starts playing it? He gets in the Gryffindor Quidditch team. So, yes, yeah, ma- ma- yeah, so, yeah. There, there is an idea there. But anyway, <laughs> we, we, we digress. <laughs> but he's definitely... Um, yeah, they definitely have a similar kind of level of understanding. But it is interesting now because Kane is the one assisting Son a lot more than the mm. other way around, whereas at the start of their partnership, it did tend to be uh, Son to Kane. But yeah, I mean, that turnaround is has been so huge because now they've got probably the informed player in the Premier League in Harry Kane. And and if not, it would be Son Heung-min, would probably be his biggest rival for that for that title. Um, I mean, looking ahead as well, before we we'll let you go, Charlie... Um... What does the summer hold for Spurs? I suppose, do you want to give us two scenarios? We already kind of touched mm. on it with Conte, but a top four scenario, what might happen? And then if they don't get top four, what do you think might happen in terms of players moving on? And yeah, what what what's around the corner for this always um, uh, interesting club? Yeah, I mean, I think if they don't, then it's going to be quite a long... Um, summer spent wondering whether a Conte will go and whether Kane will go um because Kane's position's always been um you know he want, want to win trophies want to play in the Champions League and ideally want to do that at Tottenham but if I if that's not possible at Tottenham then I want to go and that's what happened last summer um so I think if they're not in the Champions League then he understandably will probably want to go obviously he's still it's still not him who holds the power because he's got two years left on his contract. 
Um, so it, it's not like if they don't get top four, he will be able to go, but I think he'll certainly want to. Whereas if they get um, top four, then at least Spurs will have a chance of convincing him that, look, we're clearly on the way up. We've got this brilliant manager who has given you such a lift and you're playing some of the best football of your career. We're going to invest in the summer. And I think they will. Certainly if they get Champions League, um, there are a few positions they want to strengthen. Left-sided central defender, um, right wing back. They want to get a support striker in, a sort of backup for Kane uh, and a couple of more targets besides. So I I think if they do get top four and there is that promise of investment and Conte staying... Then, um, then it looks a lot rosier for for Tottenham and for their chances of keeping Kane, and and that's why getting top four is so important um, for their man for their rivals, I suppose. So, who would fourth be biggest for? Then is it Spurs? Is it Arsenal? Is it Manchester United? So United are slightly insulated from from the sort of catastrophic offensive effects of not getting top four because they're such a huge club. they, You know, we've seen this before. They haven't got top four and they've still spent hundreds of millions in the yeah. transfer window and they've still been able to bring in big name elite managers, whether they've then gone on to do a good job or not is, is up for debate. Um, so I think they will, their name and prestige and wealth protects them a little bit. Then... Of Arsenal and Spurs, I mean, Arsenal, it's interesting because they're for them to get top four this season, which obviously felt like it was going to happen for a long time, would have been unbelievable and a huge, huge bonus, but was maybe slightly ahead of their um, yeah, I agree s- with that. schedule. You know, I think that the aim this season was to consolidate, get back into the top six and the Europa League. Um, top four, obviously, they would love to do and it would be amazing, but it didn't and doesn't feel quite so essential. Whereas I think for Spurs, given the stadium and, you know, all the losses they've had to take on that because of the pandemic, given the Kane situation, given the Conte situation, I just feel the difference between not getting it and getting it would be so, so massive. Um, so I I think for them, it probably is more, um, the, the difference would be more stark between getting it and not getting it. I mean, it would be a travesty if Manchester United got top four in all honesty. Yeah, they, I can't they won't. See it. Yeah. But it would it would be an absolute travesty. I don't, I don't think they're anywhere near ready to mm. take on the Champions League, if I'm being perfectly honest. Arsenal now is a difficult one, isn't it? Because it did feel like they were in the driving seat and that they were going to get it. So I think at the start of the season, if their fans had been offered to even be in contention for it, I think mm. they'd have taken it. But now because it feels like they've dropped away, it's probably going to feel worse for them than it should do, if that makes sense. Definitely, yeah. I mean, especially after those first three games where they lost them all, didn't score a goal, were bottom of the league. If you if you said to them at that point, yeah, I'll offer you um, in, in the race for fourth, that they'd most certainly have taken it. I mean, genuinely, I think the worry for for some Arsenal fans now, and James McNicholas referenced this uh, in his piece uh, earlier this week, you know, now there is a slight fear that top six could also slip out of their grasp because West Ham and uh, Manchester United aren't that far behind them. No. And they are suddenly struggling. It looks like they're going to suddenly, yeah, with those injuries, going to really struggle. But yeah, I think now for them, it, it would be a big disappointment. But once the dust settles, were they even to get, let's say they finish fifth, I think they can still point to progress. Whereas for Spurs, that would look, a yes, it would be an improvement on last season when they finished seventh, but it would be such a disappointment to miss out on the Champions League for what would be a, a third straight season. 
a bit spursy from Arsenal if they were to not get in the top six, wouldn't it? That'd be very, very, very spursy. So. Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of Arsenal fans in, in my life. So that defeat at the weekend was certainly um, felt pretty uh, pretty heavy. Obviously, producer Adonis as well is a, is a big gooner. So I know he was struggling with that one. I think it is. it does feel... In a, in a in a funny way, yeah, quite the new Arsenal is quite Spursy, Dan. I think I think it is missing the opportunities when they present themselves, and I think that that defeat to Brighton is a prime example. And also drew with Burnley, and moments like that where it's like the the door is a little bit open for Arsenal to to make the most of it, to take the advantage, and the Arsenal of of late can't make the most of it and can't capitalize on that and I think you're right Dan that experience will come but at the moment they're a young team and yeah. they haven't really been in that position before and they still probably don't have enough enough match winners they've got Bukayo Saka who's an unbelievable talent Odegaard as well but they you know they've lost a lot of those big individual players who can win you those moments like Aubameyang used to for them mm. um so I, I I think Arsenal are, are fading a little bit in their chase for it, and with Son and Kane, I think you know if they if they can stay fit for the remainder of the season, like Spurs, I think will be will be in the driving seat. Well, Charlie, a great time to cover Tottenham Hotspur at the moment and a pleasure, as always, to have you on the podcast. Tottenham fans, a reminder that you can hear more from Charlie, Jack Pitbrook and others on A View from the Lane, the Athletics' twice-weekly Spurs podcast hosted by the excellent Danny Keller. Cheers, guys. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athletic football with no spaces. Still time for us to point listeners in the direction of some of the other great items that are up on the site right now. Flo, what have you been reading? Well, obviously news, I think last week, didn't it, uh, that Neil Warnock is retiring from football. I mean, who knows if he might make one last comeback because he always seems to manage to keep his way in. But... He has said he's retiring from being a football manager. He's obviously managed a record number of games. He managed my team QPR, took them back into the Premier League after a very long time away. Uh, and he is uh, a, a character, love or love him or hate him. He's, he's definitely a character. Um, and Richard Sutcliffe's done a piece all about that called Neil Warnock, the pantomime villain who players would run through balls for. Um, he's someone who's always got ridiculous stories half of which I'm pretty sure uh, he's made up in his own head but he is a, a hilarious character and yeah Richard's done a brilliant piece kind of talking about that some words from Warnock himself um, and yeah really really interesting 
Yeah, talk about players who maximise their ability. Neil Warnock's maximised his ability, I would say, through the years. Had some unbelievable achievements and got some teams into the, into the Premier League and had, had, a, had a great career, Neil Warnock. So, yeah, wish him all the best if he does retire because you never know, as you say, what's going to happen. I've been reading about Ronaldo, Laurie Whitwell. I mean, I'm not going to be popular with the Manchester United fans at the moment, but the Ronaldo incident with knocking the phone out of the young Everton fans' hand, every, everything they do seems to be bad at the moment. But yeah, I've been reading up about that. I was also reading up about Timo Werner. Dan Fyfield's done a piece on Werner. He's probably the unluckiest striker in football. I've never seen a player miss so many guilt-edged chances since he joined a team. He was so prolific for Leipzig, but at Chelsea... Just seems to be devoid of any luck. I know he scored at the weekend, but I think he hit the woodwork three times, Flo. And he, you can say there's such a good player in there, but for some reason, something at Chelsea isn't quite clicking for him. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see what happens to him going forward because I think I think the mood from Chelsea fans is actually, you know, a lot of people are quite sympathetic towards him and, and they want to see him do well. He's not, I think there's a bit more hostility towards someone like Lukaku who they obviously played a lot of money for and they're feeling like they're not getting the most out of him. But I suppose with Werner, he's at least someone who seems to be trying so hard. He gives hard. his best. He gives his <laughs> he best. He really does. And you kind of feel a bit sorry for him. Yeah. Um, so I think Chelsea fans are, are definitely intrigued to see what happens next to him. And also a final reminder from me that you can read every article we've mentioned and so much more by signing up for The Athletic. It's just £1 a month for the first six months. So head over to theathletic.com forward slash football pod to get started. Thank you, Flo. And thanks again to Charlie Eccleshare for joining us today. And of course, thank you to all of you for listening. Do get involved in the comments section. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you've got the time. This was the Athletic Football Podcast. Flo and I will be back next week. But before then, Matt Slater will bring you the Business of Sports show on this feed. And that's available from Thursday morning. The Athletic.